0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature.
1: It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
0: Hi everyone and welcome back to They Defined, the podcast looking past the binaries that divide us to hear the complex stories that define us. This is part one of my conversation with Yomi Adegake. She, perhaps most famously, is the author of Slay in Your Lane, the Black Girl Bible, which contains both her wisdom and the combined wisdom of super successful black women like the editor of Vogue or Olympic gold medalists or BAFTA award-winning directors. And brought all their knowledge together to share it with other black women navigating the challenges of life as a black woman today. Yom and I actually worked together at ITN on this little youth site that ITN had set up. And it was quite clear then that Yom was going to go on to big things. She's now on like the Forbes under 30 luminaries to look out for. 30 under 30, I think it is and she completely deserves her spot. She seamlessly weaves together Shakespeare, the Bible, and an encyclopedic knowledge of reality TV history. In part one of our conversation, we talk about what her childhood and her storytelling dad told her about the importance of stories, the nuances of representation, and the danger of teaching a young black woman about the societal injustices that she's likely to face before she's had the opportunity to define herself for herself. So, without further ado, here is the wonderful Yomi Odekeke. We all have stories that kind of inform what we think and who we are, where we find purpose. And I was wondering if you could tell me, what were the stories that you grew up with like when you were younger?
1: Oh my God, firstly Bible stories for sure. I literally like used to ask people what parable or psalm or like biblical tale shaped their adulthood anxieties. Because I feel like there's always one, whether it's like, was it Job who got swallowed by the whale? I haven't been to church long enough to remember. But there's always some sort of Bible story that might like, haunt you <laughs> if you grow up in the church. So mine was literally the story about a guy who spends all of his life, like, saving maybe grain in a barn or money in a barn or something and then he dies oh yeah obviously, yeah he can't take the money with him and because I'm like a chronic saver that like literally haunts me <laughs> <laughs> and I think about it a lot But so then my other stories was my dad like that really makes me think about my dad because my dad is like a massive storyteller and he used to walk me and my little sister on the way to school um primary school and he used to tell us All these random Nigerian folk tales that he just kind of made up and like changed according to his whims and like that was literally like (laughs) the the stories that kind of accompanied a lot of my childhood so yeah that's what first comes to mind
0: what were the structure of those stories was there like a common shape to them did the hero always win were they funny like what were those stories about
1: They were always really moralising and the hero, there was, it was always like a moralising, cautionary tale. God, I love my dad sometimes. (laughs) Because I'm like thinking about it and I'm like between being terrified, like shitless about, you know, life at church and being told all the time that like all the stories were obviously, I mean, not always. There was a lot of redemption too. There was a lot of like other things, but they were always moralising. It was the prodigal son. The, the good Samaritan and all that and then my dad would then like I have this really distinct memory of my dad talking about greediness in a parable and I remember like it concludes with this I think it's like this guy who was eating way too much and it concludes like and at the end his head explodes the end like so yeah they were always really moralizing and really kind of like the point was you're supposed to like learn a lesson but it's so funny because my dad who has two journalists daughters it's like a massive storyteller so rather than like have a go at us he'd, like, have a go at us through stories and be like, oh, well, this is what happened to this person.
0: Did that make you scared as a child or as a person?
1: I think the Bible generally as a child was, like, terrifying. Um, it was just, like... But then also kind of made me, like, happy because there was, there was so much tell of redemption and forgiveness and, like, some of the stories were really bloody cool. So, like, you know, I definitely think I probably got a bit of my storytelling knack from church, which I don't want think I've really thought about till now, really. But to be honest, like even my dad's moralizing tales, they were almost more like funny because they were just like so ludicrous most of the time. So I couldn't really take them seriously. But I think the Bible ones, I was slightly more like, oh God, a lot of Bible talk concludes in hellfire. So it can be a bit like, oh, do you know what I mean? But yeah, I don't think as an adult, it's necessarily something that instills any fear in me. But I think definitely as a kid, you know, the Bible was like terrifying, (laughs) I don't think I'm one of those people that has like residual religious guilt and less over fear from like a Christian childhood because I wouldn't say I'm not religious now I think now I'm just kind of like oh well thanks for those stories and the like moral compass I suppose I'll take the bits of it I agree with and leave it at that.
0: That's kind of what growing up is isn't it it's kind of like uh, filtering the moral stories especially when you've had so many like every walk to school you've got to kind of work out which one's work for you. And, and I suppose that right. leads me on to the next bit. Like, how, how do you reckon your story has changed now? How would you describe the ideas that most guide you, mm-hmm. whether it's professional or moral or emotional decision making?
1: Um, one thing I do think I found quite interesting about myself as a child was that even when I was presented with certain stories, I have always been somebody that like, is heavily critical of everything. So even when I was, like, afraid of, like, Bible stories and stuff, for instance, me and my sister were, like, joking the other day, it was around Christmas or New Year's and Oklahoma was on, and we were just talking about how even as children, we were like, wow, like, Oklahoma, (laughs) we're not really 100% sure about the moral compass of this film in which this probable, like, depressive guy in Judd is, like, hunted down by, like, a kind of preppy cowboy and his like girlfriend and it we we were kind of just like interested in the morals of that story and it kind of made us think about other films we'd watched like high school musical and how we'd always been like on sharpay's side and felt that she was really wronged and just looking at certain stories like and shows that we used to watch growing up and how critical we were of the morality of it and felt that hey i'm not really 100 percent sure on this it's exactly kind of how i am now eerily so where i was never really a kid that even with the bible even when i was scared and stuff i questioned a lot and i was always like hmm but if this then why that and surely that's quite cruel and isn't the bible supposed to be about like forgiveness and stuff so i always kind of question things and i think the stories now it'd be difficult for me to even really think about what stories kind of guide me now morally and emotionally really just because i think i'm so
0: you're more complicated than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but
1: I take everything with a pinch of salt. Like, I've always kind of questioned stuff.
0: I suppose your dad, like, being able to see your dad, like, constructing these stories, even as, like, a three-year-old or whatever, you're just like, there's something up with this story. You, you almost <laughs> see the mechanics of a story. And, and, I mean, as the writer you've become, there are, like, elements, and you're like, oh, that, that got put there by someone. Like, that's not just yes, there.
1: exactly that, right? Very aware that things were constructed and for... Um, often agendas, and I definitely wasn't as eloquent about it as a kid, but I remember maybe, like, primary school memory was, like, me and my sisters really interrogating, and it probably comes from having an older sister that's, like, six years older than me, so she was old enough to make us question things, but me and my little sister really interrogating the lyrics of Nasty Girl by Destiny's Child, and, like, that it was really slut-shamey and we were kind of like hey like this is a very nice song and also like confused because obviously Destiny's Child wore like really tiny outfits so we were like how come they get to but they're like now like slut-shaming other people and like see what I'm saying like we never really just kind of swallowed anything whole so I think that's kind of continued throughout adulthood for sure.
0: Yeah and, and there's there's a clear idea of fairness being more important than the objective of the story like oh my uh, God, the stories yeah. you've talked about like with oklahoma or or high school musical it's like okay i don't care what you're 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 telling me this is the good guy and this is the bad guy this isn't fair
1: oh my god yeah i that's very perceptive of you because like as a child i was like obsessed with the concept of fairness why i wanted to be a lawyer my parents were like you're really argumentative which was true (laughs) yeah my parents
0: too
1: (laughs) they were like you're also obsessed with the idea of fairness and justice and still Mm. am in many ways but as a kid, all the stories that I didn't like and that I, I remember being upset about was that I didn't think it was fair.
0: And that's almost what a barrister is, a storyteller, being like, I'm going to tell this story so the result is, well, the result is good for my client, mm. but but ultimately mm. in an ideal world so that the result is fair. Do you remember a time where, like, the that concept of fairness first sort of felt real to you?
1: I don't think I realised how unfair life was for ages. <laughs> I very much thought, Everything happens for a reason and everything kind of works out and makes sense in some way. It really took me a while. I remember the scandals of my, like, primary school days where, like, I'll never forget one girl very arbitrarily and randomly said that I'd brought a knife to school. Which, anytime I say that, everyone's, like, scandalised. And I was just like, huh? And I remember, like, being so... Confused by like somebody just randomly saying that. That like a teacher came up to me and was like, you know, this girl said you brought a knife to school, and I was like, well, I didn't. And she was like, oh, okay. And then we all just kind of went on with life. And and I was very used to things like that happening. Like someone once like stole an illustration I'd done. I'd entered into an art competition, and she just like pure scribbled out my name and put her name on it. And then in the middle of the assembly, when it was announced she was one, I was like. Oh my god that's mine and just like put my hand up and said hey i drew that and like no one questioned it and everyone was like oh oops rosie sit down come on you're me you've won the prize and it was just so very like straightforward but there's a narrative that if you are in a minoritized group you spend all day walking around thinking about it and knowing that like you're minoritized and that it's difficult but i'd be absolutely lying if i said that like i experienced shit at school secondary school but i didn't walk around knowing that like life was really unfair one of the first times that i truly thought oh my god this actually isn't fair," was like two run-ins with the police actually one time when my house got burgled and the, my parents were reporting it to the police and the police came over and were like is this all the information you have and they were, my parents were like yes I remember seeing them leave and just fully being aware that they were never going to come back and they were never going to follow it up. And I thought, Mm. wow, that is insanity. Like, I just know that they're not going to do anything about it. And then the other time was like another incident with the police where there'd been some sort of aggression, at like a chicken shop. But I just remember, like, we'd called the police, me and like a group of friends in maybe college. I just remember once they got there, us feeling like, oh, shit, they're not going to do anything about this. And also somehow we're like now... Defending ourselves, even though the, we're mm. the ones who called them. But I think, honestly, prior to that, of course, people have like these ideas of like life being fair and life not being fair. But I just think, on a as naive it sounds, I truly was of the impression that life was broadly fair.
0: I think that's like a really, especially if you're brought up in in like a, a family that that tries to teach you fairness. I think it's really normal to assume. Things are fair, yeah. even though you're someone who questions things. It takes a crisis, and and the police examples are really good examples because police only turn up when something's especially wrong. It takes yeah. a crisis for to break your your that narrative belief, right? of of exactly. fairness. I think fairness generally is something that we all, especially as children, like naively want to believe in.
1: Absolutely, I, I really agree with you there because I think the current kind of conversation and narrative is that like you have to be super privileged to feel that way. But you don't. I feel like, you know, I wasn't especially privileged, but I was in a religious household where, you know, I suppose you are raised to believe, as you said, like in the principles of fairness, but also that everything has a point and that everything Mm. has a reason. For a Mm. long time, bad shit happening to me felt like, I'd known of horrible things that happened to people, like within my family, amongst my friends. And I still thought, oh, well, everything kind of levels out. It took a really long time for me to really like, that like i wasn't i wasn't of that opinion anymore because before that i was like everything eventually corrects itself and god doesn't like do things to you if you can't take it kind of thing
0: and when you lose that grounding i mean i never had the god narrative personally really but when you lose that grounding narrative of believing that there's a system and i believed in systems or like hoped even unconsciously to believe like things made sense when that goes, it, it's really dislocating, and I suppose that's that's why we become storytellers and writers because we want to make sense again.
1: Exactly, that's the thing. It's like, I that's why it's like I don't even even when it comes to meaning and trying to find some semblance of it on this mortal coil, it's it's difficult because I think part of me will never fully be able to dislocate from that. Otherwise, I honestly don't know who I'd be. When people are like, oh, do you believe in God? I'm like, I mean, to me, I I certainly i'm like an agnostic person because i feel like it's easier for me to believe in something than nothing i suppose i feel Mm. like i've actually acted i think that's true like
0: nothingness like it took it took a while for the concept of zero to be invented because nothingness is hard to imagine
1: it's hard to imagine right exactly and i feel like i will always have some form of grounding in whether it's religion or you know the preferred term for many like spirituality like i i there's something I'm clinging to because if not Mm. I think I would definitely struggle in some and as you said it is part of that storytelling like arc because you do want to try and understand and I feel like I know I don't but I also know that if I completely moved away from like my grounding in some form of spirituality I, I I don't know what I'd be or where I'd be but I know I wouldn't be how I am now
0: and I mean, I mean, that's what this podcast is about. It, it's me sort of trying to make sense of yeah. of what we tether ourselves to. But anyway, yeah. mo- moving from from the stories that shaped you to the stories you tell, you're into telling stories. Like you worked out pretty early on. Like I remember you telling me about your blog when you were at Warwick, or maybe even yeah. earlier. So then you were drawn to stories, and you became a storyteller. It began to ve- develop as like a vocation, mm. and. Why do you think that sort of urge to write came out?
1: So I know there are people that are like super literary and are very like, oh my God. Like my friend Bora always says, she calls it being possessed by the pen, which I just love as a turn of phrase. And she's like, yeah, you know, you get these people that are just like possessed by the pen and it's like, it's just the soul you and it comes so naturally and it's just like it's like a real cathartic. I mean it's cathartic I think for everybody in some sense it's why people keep journals and diaries but like it really is almost like an otherworldly thing. They wake up the next day in like a haze and they're just like, oh my god, I just wrote really Iliad and I don't know how like it's just like that that is like <laughs> some people's journey. but for me, I think it's like honestly a combination of me really liking to speak and me honestly seeing writing as a form of speaking because i've been told several times that i write very similarly to how i speak and i mm. think for me it is very it's a very similar process as me like debating or having conversations with people which are often debates because of how i talk um, and you know <laughs> putting that into like written form but i think the real like core of it is i like explaining things i'm never like trying to beat someone around the head with like discourse and opinion i just like to say this is what i think and this is why and i think it all goes back to that questioning thing because i think i really reside like quite firmly in the grave of most things and i think Hmm. it's rare i have an outright opinion on anything or if i do i'm very open to it being challenged because i think it's almost a form of arrogance to assume that you've got it all figured out so I think I've always been somebody who likes to obviously question yes but also like present my side of a story and idea and argument and I'm more Mm. than happy for someone else to you know constructively say well this is why I think that's flawed genuinely just wanting to like say I know you think this but I think this and this is why I think that and then quite literally being like, hmm, I could do this, but be writing it down instead of like shouting on a playground.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it makes the words that you're saying still, and then you can kind of build something rather than them just being sort of like drawn away by the river of life. That sounds much more profound than it was.
1: It makes perfect um, sense,
0: though. And, and it's so funny because I've seen so many comments on on your post being like, oh, my God, like, Yom once again, saying, like, what I've been trying to say forever or, like, <laughs> saying things I didn't even know I felt and da-da-da-da-da. And, like, you've got this capacity. You're a watcher. You're, like, really good at observing. Thank um, you. Yeah, you're good. It's all, like, it's true. And, <laughs> and I was wondering, yeah. like, where do you think you started observing and then how did you think that capacity to observe and to see grew
1: i think now i'm kind of settling on where i think that started which is in the like most basic way it's just a pure interest in people i like literally love people like and then simultaneously i'm like massively antisocial, but at the same time like really do love people and love like difference and just love variety of just opinion and just how different people can be and and why the also the why i'm like a massively empathetic person i literally remember when i was like a child very heavily remember praying for everyone in the world because <laughs> the idea of like <laughs> anybody being upset or like harmed or hurt in any way just was like really unbearable to me. So I literally just prayed for everyone. I was like this is absolute lunacy but that was like full on like till like my late, like, like probably just before I got to secondary school I thought it was like a feasible thing that everyone could simultaneously be fine again, showing how, like, naive and optimistic I was. I did have quite a sheltered life. But I think I've always... beautiful too. Thank you. Oh, God, I'm completely different now. (laughs) But (laughs) back then, I was, like, a right little cutie. And it's like, yeah, I think I just really love people and and I'm very empathetic. And I think it's one of the things that really, like, stresses me out about the period we're in is just that there is so little nuance, yes, but also understanding of the why. Because I really strongly believe that people are products of their environment and you know I very much believe in like nurture over nature and mm-hmm. I feel like there is more and more conversation about people being like intrinsically and inherently bad and I just don't think that's the case it's interesting like the conversations we have today is you know especially on the left it's like we're supposed to I suppose are towards like rehabilitative justice and anti-death penalty and all these things but sometimes like the way we discuss things I think wow people actually want they're probably more in alignment with like more right-wing punitive systems because to Mm. punitive approaches because I'm like I just think life is complicated and I think people are complicated and I don't and I think that's always made me drawn to understanding people and having a better understanding of myself through other people because I know I'm by no means perfect but I also know that I usually have yeah, the, the best intentions for people, and I mm. think that's not the case for everyone. But more people than we often think, probably again showing like naivety. But I do think that can be the case. Hey, that, and I but think, that's not
0: something to be like embarrassed about. Like I, I think you're right. It's almost embarrassing that I think like I hope for the best from people, but but yeah. we've got to no, like because we have like to. I, have you read the book Utopia for Realists?
1: No, I haven't.
0: It's dope. It's so good. It's by Rutger Bregman. The thesis is like, we've come closer to ideas that we thought were utopian and we've actually achieved utopian ideas in the past. Mm -hmm. And then like the space of acceptability is like shifted to the left or the right or whatever. But like, you need to have like something outside the bracket. We have to, we have to like be aspirational for the, for like, communitarily aspirational.
1: Yes, that sounds, that sounds great. Like, I'm not even joking, I'm on the Amazon page right now. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <He> like, <laughs> it bangs and okay. and like there are. Po- if you can't be bothered to read the book there are podcasts that he does who- which are like wonderful too so but that sense of empathy is is a beautiful thing and you're right like, once the empathy goes the punitive swing comes back in and okay. that's why fascist regimes always look to be like oh you know like x race or x gender or x sexuality isn't human and thus now we can mm. punish them
1: oh my god exactly
0: yeah that empathetic flex is like important.
1: No, I really really agree with that man. And as you said like it's the it's the dehumanization by suggesting that things are like intrinsic to certain groups and it's it, we're just in a very funny time I think. I think that like especially like on Twitter and like certain social media platforms like expressing not even just empathy but like benefit of the doubt is seen as very like potentially weak or potentially mm. you know what I mean like Well benefit like, of the
0: doubt's not going to start trending, is it?
1: yeah exactly (laughs) unless it's like ironically like when twitter makes things trend just so they can like drag it under the hashtag which just says (laughs) everything to me about where we're at
0: oh no anyway moving on moving on let's not get let's not get depressed (laughs)
1: yeah
0: another part of your your like ability to observe and then put into words is and again like a word that i've seen a million times associated with like people reading your work is seen, I feel oh. seen, like and like that is such a that's such a space that this cultural moment is working on it's like making mm. people feel seen and be seen, and I was wondering if you could reflect like on like what you think it gives people to be seen
1: mm. I think it oh god it gives a lot doesn't it i I think it gives it gives um permission in mm. like the you know most basic way, one of the things that I'm really conflicted on is just like what representation means and matters in the wine i know it most certainly matters i think putting terms to experiences like my god when i first had to tell microaggression like i was just like mm. but i've experienced that so many times and i didn't you you sometimes don't even know you're experiencing a thing because the terminology around it doesn't exist and i remember i mean i we i preface it's in the preface of um slaying your Lane, where i mentioned that the first time I ever like, thought consciously of, about misogynoir, you know, the, the, the specific kind of way that racism and sexism affects black women. I knew it was a thing, but I'd never had the terminology for it. And I remember the first time I thought about it in a meaningful way was watching Scrubs of all things, because I saw Elliot and Turk arguing about whether it was harder to be a black doctor or a female doctor, and then a black female doctor walks past, and they're all like kind of sheepishly like, oh, hey, like, like hi, or didn't see you there. And I remember thinking, that's me. Like, like, I'm black, I'm a woman. I know it's harder, like, objectively, but I don't know, I don't know why, I don't know how to articulate that. And I think that made me feel seen. I don't know if that was the intention, but that genuinely, that scene made me feel seen. And it made me feel like I had permission to acknowledge that that was a real thing, that like I was treated differently to black men and white women who also had their own valid set of circumstances and issues that you know aren't invalidated or in any way undermined by my own specific experience but when people would be like Hey Laura's the first female winner of big brother i was like is this supposed to speak to me as a girl because i don't give a heck I, I remember thinking she was cool and like whatever but it doesn't speak to me not in the same way that like tim campbell's win on the apprentice did as a black man but then also neither of them spoke to me in a way that like god the fact that like my life is just understood throughout reality tv is insane but yeah like the way i saw <laughs> mccose in big brother and i was so protective over mccose in primary school because i felt like that's me and i think seeing things me it just it just honestly like I, I used to say that when i first became an author like i would go to like the same clubs i went to and if people asked me what i did i would just lie because it felt awkward because i knew it would be such a talking point because like genuinely authors just did not like this is when i was like 24 25 so like i just got the book deal and it was like i'm going to this rave and like i'm at the bar and someone's like, oh, so what do you do and i'm like uh I'm, I, I don't remember what you be i, I did to like saying i was a journalist because it just it just raised so many questions because it wasn't mm. just wasn't something that was seen and especially because it's not just like oh, she's black, it's like, I'm black, I'm young, I'm a girl, but also, like, I'm from a particular area, hence why I was going to those raves in the first place and still do. But it just wasn't the general thing. And that's not just, you know, experiencing microaggressions in all-white places where people are super shocked that you do something. If you're not seeing it in that in your own community, it doesn't matter how aspirational you are, you are still going not you know, it might be for different reasons, but you're still going to be surprised or not expect people to be occupying certain spaces because you're internalizing the same signals that say that we don't. I'll never forget when I saw this, this is like so bad. This took place maybe like three years ago. I saw a headline and it was like Cardi B's dentist experiences like an influx of requests and her work rate goes up by 400% ever since Cardi B mentioned her in a rap. And the accompanying picture was Cardi B and her dentist, who was like a black woman like glamorous black woman. And I swear to God, I was looking at the picture for like three minutes, like, where's her dentist? Because I just never met a young black female dentist before. It just never occurred to me. And I was like, who's that? And then my, my best friend was literally like, that's her dentist. And I was like, oh my God, I'm part of the problem. Like, how did I not realize? And she was like, yummy. The only reason I clocked that is because I watch um, Married to Medicine. And if you watch Married to Medicine, which is a reality TV show, all the women are like all the doctors all the like plastic surgeons all the dentists are black women so she was very used to seeing glamorous black women in those roles where i was like i wasn't so yeah i think it gives permission when you see when you feel seen when something resonates and it's articulating something that you didn't even know you wanted to articulate it gives you permission to think and feel those things too
0: yeah completely that's amazing and it and it's really interesting to think of like that tension between you have made it your livelihood to make things seen and and you are part of what is being seen and then to be in a space like them raves and, and think I now want to be invisible like yeah. or, or like not you specifically're like oh there is an element of me that I want invisible
1: yeah, which is so weird because it's like it's a was like a positive thing for sure like i'm i'm so happy to be a representation of of like what an author can look like and stuff but i think i just knew it raised so many questions that sometimes i just Mm didn't want to i'm like better at now but back then i was just like oh my god i'm literally just trying to i'm just trying to rave there's like
0: a space of like of like being that bridge like you like being an intersection <laughs> to make that bridge strong and to feel comfortable with your foot on that bridge I'm really stretching this metaphor but you need to walk over it a few times i don't know I, I like the only space that my experience can connect with this was was when i was like first wearing uh like dresses and skirts Mm. and makeup and going into spaces and like being super unsure of like when I wanted to change my pronouns so that that space of of self-description that can only really become clear once you kind of tell that story enough times for you to be like okay so these are this is where I put my feet on this bridge Mm,
1: absolutely absolutely like it's definitely a hundred percent of time thing like you know and I don't think I don't know like that's such an interesting example, because I feel like you taking that time isn't representative of anything other than you needing that time. And I think sometimes I can feel like there's pressure that if you don't, if you're not able to occupy that space immediately or if you're not able to do these things immediately, then it's like, I don't know, like there, there's something wrong or like you, you should. I can feel there is often a pressure that just doesn't feel fair. <laughs> Back to my
0: Yeah, a pressure to to name something. Um, mm. and, and, and it's, it's like the, the converse part of, of what we're saying like the beauty of like getting the right terms for the right things to be yeah. able to describe injustice or just to, to be able to describe oneself but then it's like getting a diagnosis of depression like mm. that is so wonderfully empowering and you have this name and you have a thing that you can explain yeah. why you don't want to go for drinks or you can get the drugs you need but then you also almost live to it or you, you try and be that Um, because it's more solid.
1: Oh my God.
0: And for more of Yomi's wisdom, you're going to have to tune in next week to listen to the second part of this conversation. Thank you so much, Yom, for your time and energy. I'm so grateful for it. I leave every conversation with you, with a smile on my face and a slightly bigger brain. You're fab. Please follow us at They Defined on Instagram And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and get in touch. I really love hearing from all of you. And if you like what I do, please share it with other people because I'm trying to grow a little community and every little helps. Thank you so much. Stay safe, stay well and look after each other.